You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped, first broadcast on the 6th of September 2015 on Monocle 24. Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. From Monocle's bureau in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Singapore, and here at Midori House in London, this is Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ, an unmissable weekly briefing from the world's most dynamic region. Coming up in the program, it's been a sad week in Tokyo as we bid farewell to one of the city's most beloved architectural marvels. There's a specific mood right now in the hotel. It's extremely busy. There's people from all over Tokyo coming to visit it on its last days to maybe soak in the atmosphere of this very special place. We'll also hear from a company that specializes in bringing that cozy home feeling to those who constantly find themselves on the move. When you think about coziness, it's really important to see that it's an intricate feeling and to really understand that what it means is intimacy, trust, and a feeling of ease. So those three elements are really key to coziness and extremely important to us within our team. And later in the show, we'll head to Singapore to hear about how the importance of community plays a central role in creating a cozy home. All that plus the final chapter of my interview with the former Australian Foreign Minister, Alexander Downer. That's all to come on Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ, starting now. Welcome to the show, I'm Ben Rylan. First up today, we're heading to Vietnam. Now, it'll come as no surprise to anyone that Vietnam is becoming one of the world's most popular holiday destinations. This August, the country welcomed just under 665,000 international visitors. That's 7.5% more than the same time last year. Lian Huang is a journalist in Ho Chi Minh City. She joins me now on the line. Lian, taking into account the vast changes seen in Vietnam over the past few decades, what impact do you think tourism has had on the country? Well, tourism has changed in the last couple of decades in the same way that most industries have because Vietnam was under an embargo until 1994, a U.S. trade embargo. And so before then, it wasn't really open to the rest of the world except for other communist countries. And so everything's really been transformed since then. It's really been like night and day. The kinds of visitors that are coming today are much more diverse, you know, compared with 20 years ago when it was mostly the second world, mostly post-Soviet states or Cuba or others in Asia. And today uh, it's just a much more cosmopolitan place. Uh, reflected in the types of people who are coming, but also the Vietnamese who are receiving them. The Vietnamese themselves speak a lot more languages, and uh, just internationalizing is a is a major priority for the government, but it's also reflected in the general public. People are more interested and curious about the outside world. And what about the attitudes amongst Vietnamese people? Do they see this rise in tourism as a good thing, something that's contributing positively to the economy and the culture? Well, I I think it's mixed, as it would be anywhere. You know, tourism has helped the country to develop along with other industries, but that doesn't mean the country just opens up the gates and 
everything is transformed, there's still, of course, going to be people who are not interested or not affected or still concerned about preserving uh, Vietnamese heritage, uh, cultural sites. So there's kind of a, there's always a little bit of tension between these different perspectives, but I think overall uh, Vietnamese are pretty positive and a lot of people coming into the country are somewhat surprised by how friendly the Vietnamese are. I'm from the U.S., and Americans often come here thinking that the Vietnamese are still holding on to war grudges, but they're not. And so Americans especially are very shocked when they meet Vietnamese who are so welcoming to them. So, Lien, it wasn't so long ago that Vietnam was viewed primarily as a poor country. Those perceptions have changed. Would you say tourism has also contributed towards a rise in quality of life and general living standards? Uh, sure. Tourism is just one of the factors that uh, has contributed to the Vietnam getting out of poverty, um, improving standards of living. Sure, a lot of Vietnamese, especially young people, go into tourism, become tour guides, learn English, uh, work in hospitality. And so one common kind of route to improving one's living standards is for young people to move from the countryside into the cities, into areas where uh, visitors are more likely to come, and uh, learn English, study hospitality, and make a living that way and then send money uh, home to their relatives in the provinces. And so uh, this is definitely one important industry for Vietnam. Lian Huang there in Ho Chi Minh City. Thanks for joining us. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Up next, we'll check out of Tokyo's grand architectural marvel, the Hotel Okura. As anyone familiar with Tokyo's iconic Okura Hotel probably knows, last weekend saw the beautiful main building close forever. The demolition teams are moving in to make way for the 40-storey tower that will go up in its place. While our Tokyo Bureau produced a fitting tribute to this local institution that can be found on our film section, our Madrid correspondent Liam Aldous was in town for the weekend and was fortunate to be among the last guests to be welcomed in and looked after by the ever-attentive Okura staff. Armed with his microphone, Liam recorded the final verses of the building's swan song, a melody that was both frenetic and somber as the Okura, as we know it, wound down forever. As one of the final guests staying in the Hotel Okura's main building, it's been fascinating to watch the ebb and flow of visitors that have streamed into the iconic lobby at all hours, all eager to soak up the atmosphere before this beloved institution exists in memory only. From a television crew and a group of musicians that took over the space to film a live tribute show on Friday night, to local residents wandering around silently and solemnly, to the endless crowds of tourists snapping every square centimetre with their smartphones, it seems as if everyone has finally realised just what will be lost on the eve of its destruction. Among those in the lobby, I meet German guest Katja, who has incorporated a stay at the Okura into her honeymoon. I've been staying now at the hotel for the past four nights, before it's closing down, and I've been uh, very happy to be here. 
And what's the atmosphere been like? What have you noticed? Has it been strange to walk through the lobby? Is there a specific mood in the hotel? I would definitely say that there's a specific mood right now in the hotel. It's extremely busy. There's people from all over Tokyo coming to visit it on its last days to maybe soak in the uh, the atmosphere of this very special place. The uh, lobbying is actually uh, permanently populated by people. So for us as a guest staying here, it's been even a bit hectic where I wanted to really experience the hotel in a more calm way and really explore the different alleys and corridors. But now it's many people around, so it's a bit more hectic than I would have wished. At the same time, it kind of creates a buzz around the place as well, which makes it um, more memorable or even more special to be here right in this moment before it's closing down. It's very bittersweet, isn't it? Absolutely bittersweet. Um, I would actually say, um, or I'm actually very surprised that they're shutting it down because it's such a special place. So, I mean, I would definitely sign a petition against closing it down. I know this was actually taking place before. And um, I've also heard that it's apparently because of um, uh, the seismic safety of the hotel. I'm a bit surprised about this kind of argument because I work in seismic safety, I mean, for schools, but uh, I would say that applies to all different buildings. And um, normally these kind of places can be retrofitted to resist any earthquake coming up. So I was a bit uh, surprised and I'm not quite sure if I should believe this argumentation. Down at the Yamasato restaurant, I meet the manager Sumio Ito, who, after 22 years, is wrapping up his last ever dinner service in the main building. With diners including the Thai Queen, his team were working hard to the very end. Tomorrow what will happen? Where will you go? Very, very um, so suddenly, yes. My job at the Okra, very, very uh, I love it. And the rest of the, the staff, has it been a happy night or a sad no, no, night? No, 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 no. So, so very, very busy, busy, busy day. Yeah. So about, uh, so finished and marked, oh, very, very, very suddenly, yes. Japanese visual artist Izumi is one of the many people that have come in to capture the last hours of the building on camera. It's a closing of an era, it's closing of a, of a time and we are coming here also to see the tradition. We want to see the incredible capacity of welcoming of the Japanese, we want to see the details, we want to see the lighting. The lighting is amazing. I've seen a lot of people came to see goodbye to the Okura and uh, especially in the past three weeks there have been a lot of love more people here taking pictures and just giving a farewell to this amazing place and have you noticed uh, any sadness in the air in these last few days oh yes oh yes especially among also the clients the people working here yes obviously there is a sense of, uh, of sadness I'm not that sure that the new hotel actually I am sure that the new hotel won't be comparable to this and uh, we don't want to go to another new hotel we want to go to this one this one is unique and unbeatable also this hotel was built to show the modernity of Japan just before the 1964 Olympic Games and it's gonna die for the new Olympic Games. So it's like a paradox of modernity. It was born to show the modernity of Japan. It's time because <laughs> it can't keep up. And amidst all the magnified commotion, the team of attentive lobby boys and girls are ensuring that the hotel keeps ticking along smoothly until the very end. Very sad, very sad, yes. I'm working in this hotel not so long, 
but I'm I really really like this hotel, and uh, I'm very happy to work this hotel. So I'm very sad. And what about your colleagues and and the mood or the atmosphere? Uh, everybody is very kind, and very kind for the same worker and for the guest. As everything is good, I think. And uh, when you finish your shift this yes, tonight, yes, tonight yes. what are you going to do? We have to move to the south wing. Every day's goods okay. to the south wing. Okay. So I think we cannot finish the work. So life goes on, life continues. Yes, continue, yes, of course. <laughs> that was Monocle's Liam Aldis there, checking out of Tokyo's grand and now gone Hotel Akura. You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Still to come, we'll hear about one of Singapore's coziest neighbourhoods. As the life of Tokyo's iconic Hotel Akura came to an end, Monocle was granted exclusive access to capture on film the gracious ways of this much-loved modernist gem. The hotel became a showcase for Japanese craft, a dazzling marriage of traditional techniques and modern design, from the shoji paper and the intricate tatagu wooden screens to the famous pendant lamps in the lobby. The interior is filled with references to Japanese culture. End of an Era, our farewell film to the Okura Hotel, premiering now in the film section of monocle.com. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Moving from one place to another is one of life's more stressful times, although recent innovations have made the process a little easier. But for a business that must constantly traverse between places and bridge cultural differences, how would you keep that cosy home feeling, whether it's for yourself or your clients? Sinan Tiris is general manager of the Pont Bleu Group, dedicated to providing that cosy home experience to a discerning selection of globe-trotting clients. Monocle's Kurt Lin caught up with Sinan at his company's office in Hong Kong. We're a global luxury lifestyle business currently covering roughly 16 territories spread out over four continents. Now we've got a wide range of activities in retailing, wholesaling, branding and and consulting. What it all comes down to is pretty much uh, the global affluent elite, so to speak, uh, who have the highest expectations in uh, any regards. So um, what it's all about is raising the level of quality in everything we do constantly to the the maximum. So what does coziness mean to you because apparently we just launched a book called uh, the monocle guide to cozy homes mm-hmm. and i think coziness means so much to you when you face your clientele and the service and providing service and the quality of uh, and product as well right yeah absolutely when you think about coziness it's really important to see that it's an intricate feeling and to really understand that what it means is intimacy trust and a feeling of ease so to speak So those three elements are really key to coziness and extremely important to us within our team. Uh, Defining pretty much how we work and how we approach anybody we meet and we do business with. Uh, Of course, it's not easy. It's not an easy feat to get to such a high level of relationships uh, with the client. And it depends on creating the whole experience and the feeling of comfort that you only get through authentic and close human interaction. It's very important for us to know who all our clients are and who our customers are and what they need in order to feel cozy and to be completely comfortable and natural. So that, I believe, is what right from the start gained us the trust of brands like Audi, the Lily here in Hong Kong, or high-end Japanese family businesses 
uh, especially in the German and Japanese context. The atmosphere of how you do business is really, really important. And there, this, this feeling of intimacy and coziness are really, really central. And of course, you don't have to, you don't have to go to the Bierstube down the street and as you used to maybe for decades ago and you keep jugging away one beer after another and to finally sign the deal at 5 a.m. in the morning, half conscious. But business is still absolutely personal and we must never forget how essential that is. So how do you make your clients' lives more cozier? Like in particular, if there are any examples that you could give? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe maybe an example from our retail arm, the um, yeah, luxury retail outlet, the Tatlery. Uh, we deliver, for example, our locally grown organic veggies or fine beauty products or what have you, personally to our clients' homes with our own staff. So everything is beautifully hand-packed or even gift-wrapped and comes with a personal note. And our customers actually get to know our staff and they really look forward to the two-minute chat at the door with a familiar face when their latest tatlery order gets handed over to them. And they really enjoy the interaction and it's an important step to show we care and to build trust. So, yeah, in particular, what do your clients expect from you uh, to provide some kind of coziness and also the professional mm. manners mm. in such a fast-paced world? Yeah, what they expect without saying a word is that we understand exactly what they expect us to deliver. So it's not easy to do this. The customers expect the top level in everything, whether it's packaging, delivery of the products, quality of the products, availability and responsiveness of our staff. They expect a personal level of service without having this servitude attitude that you just bow to the customer every time that you uh, you encounter them, but you face them on eye level. So they expect you to anticipate everything uh, that is important to them and you have to have a really, really fine sense for what they uh, what they really expect and how to approach them and what they like. So that is that is really the key. That was Sin and Terrace there from Pon Blur Group, chatting to Monocle's Kurt Lin. Now, as many Monocle 24 listeners will know, the Monocle Guide to Cozy Homes recently hit bookshelves. It's our survey of everything you need to build the residence you want. And as with all of Monocle's books, the guide is a perfect balance of the inspirational and the practical. If you'd like a sneak peek, head over to monocle.com. For now, though, we'll continue that cosy home theme as we touch down in Singapore. The Tiong Baru neighbourhood, characterised by modernist architecture, has remained a distinct and vibrant residential precinct reasonably unaffected by the evolution of the city's urban landscape over the years. Kelvin Ang, who works as a conservation manager with the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Singapore, is also an advocate of the Tiong Baru's close-knit community. He spoke with our Singapore Bureau Chief Nolan Giles from his very cosy flat in Tiong Baru about the history of the neighbourhood and how its unique qualities have impacted upon his work in Singapore's urban development. Tiong Bahru is the first major modern housing estate that was built in the 1930s to be completed only in the 1950s. So you can say that this estate is the predecessor or granddaddy of modern public housing in Singapore and subsequently in Southeast Asia. That's got an influence. So it's that old. And secondly, because it's that old, many generations of people have uh, lived in this neighbourhood or passed through. We do have a market, we have local shops and local uh, eateries 
And that means that even if you don't live here, you probably have a relationship to this neighborhood because maybe your granddad lived here, or your friend works in this neighborhood, or you come here once every few months for a nice meal in a local coffee shop. And that's something that I've noticed straight away. We've only known each other for 10 minutes and you've already been accosted by a couple of your neighbors because they know uh, what your job is. Can you tell us a little bit about your work here in Singapore and, and maybe a little bit about how that impacts uh, on the community here in Tiong Bahru? I wear two hats. I'm trained as an architect and my day job is that of a conservation officer in the Urban Redevelopment Authority, which is the state planning agency. My other hat is that I am a member of the residence committee in Tiong Bahru. So I volunteer my time to try to work towards bringing people together. And this is very important in Singapore because we have a very diverse society. And in a neighbor like Tiong Bahru, there are all kinds of people who love this place for their own reasons. And we do need to try to make sure that people feel that they have a common connection to the neighborhood and therefore they can start being neighbors and friends. In terms of the architecture here, for a visitor, it, it's something fresh for them, for their interpretation of Singapore perhaps. It, it feels very different here. I guess some of the, the buildings have a, a really beautiful art deco feel, but there's a lot of variety. Could you maybe share with us uh, from your architectural background, you know, a little bit about the style of the buildings here? So to give it some context, in a strange way, Singapore's brand is about modernity and greenery. What's often overlooked is that Singapore is also a very important heritage city. In just a few years, we'll turn 200, right, since our modern founding. So we've got about 7,000 heritage buildings in Singapore, and we hope people will be more aware of them. But Tiong Bahru is unique because it's an entire district with about uh, 20 blocks of flats from before the war, and all designed in the Art Deco style. So because they're all Art Deco with lovely curved lines and streamlined balconies and unique corners, to the local people, these were seen as Hollywood flats because when Hollywood films came to Singapore, they all featured the wonderful Art Deco architecture of Los Angeles. There's this other part to Tiong Bahru, which was built after the war. Very 1950s, modernist Corbusier-type buildings with uh, gardens around them. So that's the other half, and that's quite eye-catching as well. So what's unique here really is the scale of the development, the scale of the neighbourhood. It's a complete neighbourhood of 1930s and 1950s modernism. That was Nolan Giles there in conversation with Kelvin Ang. Up next, we'll hear part three of my interview with the former Australian Foreign Minister. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ. Now, finally, on today's show, we're going to hear the final part of my interview with Australia's High Commissioner to the UK, Alexander Downer. Before taking over his current post, Mr. Downer was Australia's longest serving foreign minister under the government of the nation's second longest serving Prime Minister, John Howard. His time in office saw some rather rapid changes for Australia's place on the international stage. The country's Asian neighbours experienced economic growth and the mining boom strengthened Australia's global position. But it was also a time that saw terrorism enter the common political vernacular, not to mention the hyper-politicisation of the asylum seeker debate. For more on those topics, check out our recent episodes of Asia Pack Unwrapped by going to monocle.com. 
Today, we'll hear the final part of my interview, where I asked Mr Downer about how education has made an enormous splash in Australia's export of services, and whether the country's increasing quality of life can maintain its growth. 70% of Australia's GDP, or approximately, is services. And education's obviously a very important part of that. So I think we take the third largest number of foreign students of any country in the world. We have huge numbers of students coming to study in Australia. Yes, some of them come from Indonesia. A lot obviously come from China and India and not so many from Europe or North America, but mainly from Asia. And it's a sector of Australian society that we're continuing to build and we need to make sure that our universities uh, maintain the lead they have as high-quality institutions, particularly our universities. But we do have certain inherent advantages One of them is that our universities do have a very good reputation. We have several universities in the top 100 in the world, according to various measures of the top 100 in the world, number one. But secondly, of course, we have the advantage of being an Anglophone country and English, whether you like it or whether you don't, is the world language. So people do look for education in English-speaking countries. That's why the the two countries that are ahead of us in terms of the number of foreign students... Uh, the United States, that's no surprise, and the other one is the UK. So so we do have some inherent advantages, but um, we've capitalised on them very well, and I think we've been very successful. Now, of course, as we were chatting about, Monocle recently featured its top 25 cities for quality of life around the world. Melbourne again featured high at number four, and it's easy to see why. Uh, even when things have been historically bad in Australia, they've still been quite good when compared to many other countries. Can Melbourne and more broadly Australia maintain or even improve upon that quality of life ranking, regardless of who's measuring it? Yes. I mean, I should say yes, shouldn't I? I'm absolutely sure. But the real question is how how will we do that? Well, let's think about what's good. We'll focus on Melbourne, what's good about Melbourne. First of all, it does have a very good education system. The health sector is very strong. So those things are important to people. As a city, very good use of parks, landscape, trees, the environment. And so far as you can do this in a city used to enhance the quality of living for people living in an urban environment. So, and it has a a benign, people in Melbourne laugh about it, but it has a benign climate, Melbourne as well. It doesn't have an extreme climate of any kind. So, and it has a very high standard of living. I mean, I think Australia in per capita terms has something like the, is something like the fifth richest country in the world. And Melbourne and Sydney be the two richest cities in Australia these days. So uh, I think you'd find the standard of living is very high in Melbourne. It's a pretty egalitarian sort of place, Australia too. I mean, we have our rich and we have our poor, like everywhere. But if you look at the way people live in Melbourne, they in the main live pretty comfortably. It's a pretty nice place. Do we'll, Can we maintain that? Well, as long as we maintain steady rates of economic growth. They don't have to be spectacular, but steady rates of economic growth and the sort of social stability and cohesion which underwrites Australia, very low levels of violence and conflict is, you know, we have it, but it's very, very low in Australia. Yep, we should be able to keep our cities high on your on your index. Excellent. Um, and I will just ask for my own enjoyment very quickly. Did you watch The Killing Season and what did you think of it? I did watch it, yes. Three episodes. I watched them on my iPad. 
What did I think about it? Um, well, I found it um, a high commissioner. I found it interesting. <laughs> that was the final part of my interview with Alexander Downer, Australia's High Commissioner to the UK and former Foreign Minister, giving his opinion on education in Australia and also what he thought of The Killing Season, that ABC documentary about the rise and fall of Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, both, of course, former Labor Prime Ministers. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this edition of Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. The show was produced by our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and by me, Ben Ryland, here at Midori House in London. Nina Norek was our editor, and Kurt Lin was our researcher. We're back at the same time next week. That is, of course, 7 a.m. Monday in Sydney, 9 a.m. in Wellington, and 2200 hours here on Sunday in London. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com or tune in via iTunes, SoundCloud or the Monocle app. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ. Until next time, I'm Ben Ryland. Enjoy your week. Asia Pack Unwrapped.